Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So are we starting the Sessions Death Watch? I think we have to. This is the Sessions Death Watch session? Yes, this is the Sessions Death Watch session. (laughs) You know, if we do this, it's... Because we have a perfect record, I think. So we've far. only done it once, right? We have. I thought we have, we've done it. Tw- I thought we've declared a death watch at least twice. We, we did. Flynn. We did the Flynn death watch, yeah. and he died almost immediately. I mean, it was like <laughs> we, we should say Michael. Michael Flynn is still very much alive. Michael we, Flynn is alive, just no longer we're, employed. We're, his professional life died right. within a few days or hours, even of the Flynn death watch. Uh-huh. I think. The, I think he might have been fired before the podcast was even released. But actually. what's the what's the other example of us doing a death watch edition and finishing someone off by doing it? Mm, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. One for one is such a great. Oh, we, we had battle to the death watch. Yeah. Oh, is... that's when we couldn't figure out who was going to drop first. Yeah. So what's your over-under on this being the well, Seth Sessions? Sessions did try to resign at one point, so it's like he almost like took himself out. He so, trial ballooned his own resignation. He trial ballooned his own death watch. So I'm <laughs> I'm thinking Which he refused to talk about yesterday. I think we should uh I think and let's just call it a Sessions Death right. Watch edition with the proviso that this some death watches are short, some death watches are medium size yeah it could be an agonizingly slow death watch it could well as ben might say tick 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 (laughs) (laughs) no No comment (laughs) hello and welcome to rational security the sessions death watch edition i am shane harris of the wall street journal here in the jungle studio where it is hotter than the witness seat at the senate intelligence committee and that's pretty hot and that's pretty hot it is roasting outside it's actually not too bad in here right now i'm here with my friends ben buddhist mark Buddhist, and quinta Jurassic joining us this week hey everybody hello hey where are the klieg lights i want some klieg lights right yeah <clears throat> and the green felt what's the thing? you always hear about the green felt table it's not really a green felt table though Hmm. At least, or is there one committee that has a green felt table? I feel like they, I never see. A green no, felt I think there table. are committees that have like green felt. Yeah, I mean, but yeah. why green felt? It's not like they're going to play cards. Or no, pool. they're going to play pool. <laughs> yeah, I it's, like that table. When no one is around, they whip out the pool balls right. and the cues. That's what they do in closed session. <laughs> they play a friendly game of pool and get down to the, answering the real questions. Exactly. <laughs> These are the stories that need to be written about right, Washington. Right, right, right. Closed session. So many puns. Oh, this week. This week, guys. What a week. I feel like, when is it, when is it not a week? It has not been not a week for like many months. Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to remind everyone that Comey's testimony was last Thursday. Which is nuts. It's not even been a week. I think I've aged 10 years. Yeah. So what would Einstein say about the fact that time is speeding up? Isn't it slowing down? I mean, it's only been 144 days of the Trump presidency. But there's so much packed into it. No, I think it's a case of time dilation. I don't know. I think Einstein would just say, like, launch me into the sun. It can be better than it's got to be better than this. <laughs> Get me off this rock. <laughs> 
This week on the podcast, Attorney General Jeff Sessions testifies before the Senate Intelligence Committee about his contacts with Russia. New information shows that 39 states were targeted in some fashion by Russian hackers during the 2016 election. And President Trump gives the military authority to ramp up the number of troops in Afghanistan. Um, so let's start with the big news of the week. Um, Jeff Sessions testified before the Senate Intel Committee. Um, not really full of revelations, although a, an extensive back and forth on why he wasn't prepared to answer questions and whether the president had, in fact, invoked privilege. And um, he was full of vim and vigor. He was full of that, yes. Piss and vinegar, yeah, even. That, that Although, too, can even. I just say that one of the reasons so little information was communicated is that he talks so slowly that a two-and-a-half-hour hearing actually contains as much information as you would normally have in a one-hour hearing. Yeah, but Ben, it's not just a Southern drawl thing. Remember, the man was a senator. This was a deliberate tactic of filibustering over every round of questions because each member of the committee only had five minutes, and he was running out the clock on every single Democratic questioner. So it sounds like you would say that there wasn't a lot of new material revealed in this testimony. Did you come away from it thinking we didn't something. learn much more? What did we I, learn? I learned that Jeff Sessions gets very nervous when he is asked questions in rapid succession yeah, told Kamala by, Harris, uh, by Kamala Harris from yeah, California. I would too, for the record. <laughs> well, there's, there's also another interesting piece, which is that it turns out that, you know, in all Comey's interactions with Trump, what it really came down to was, and I quote, Comey's willingness to say no. Yeah, can I just say, Quinta, that the um, the uh, victim blaming dynamic on which you have remarked was on full display. Mm. Again. It was. It was weird. I mean, when it started off, and I I was uh, live blogging this with Jane Jane Chong, who's our deputy managing editor at Lawfare, and we were sort of messaging each other like, "Huh, he's really framing the question of because he was asked, you know." what did Comey say to you about these contacts that he was concerned about with the president? And his responses were consistently, well, you know, I, you know, we talked about how it was important to uphold these guidelines restricting contacts. And we thought, you know, well, he, he really seems like he's sort of putting the onus on Comey there. And then he just suddenly comes out with, you know, why didn't you say no? And it was mm. sort of this moment where the, the text surfaces from the subtext. Yes. Why, why didn't he say no? How many times did you say no? Did you say no loud enough? Could he hear you? Did right. you speak to your supervisor? <laughs> right. Well, and, and, and when, when Actually, the questions... you were the supervisor. He said he should have spoken to, to Dag Rosenstein. Right. I mean, well, when the question said... turned to why didn't he go to, I mean, to go to Sessions, I mean, Sessions obviously was recused from, from this, which Comey spoke about, uh, the fact that he thought he was going to be recused soon, which is why they didn't go to him with some of these concerns. So the gender and sexual uh, 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 harassment dynamics of of the hearing aside, uh, I do think that Sessions actually did give some important new information in a few discrete areas. And some of them, actually, I think he acquitted himself pretty well. Uh, So I think he had a pretty compelling answer to the question of – why he did not disclose his meetings with Sergei Kislyak earlier uh, in the context of that question that Al Franken asked him. And I actually thought his answer to that, which was basically that uh, Franken, uh, you know, asked him this sort of 
convoluted question about a breaking news story that he had known nothing about in the middle of late in his confirmation hearing, and he was quite discombobulated and was answering the question narrowly limited to the question of whether he had met in a kind of collusive context with any, you know, Russian intelligence operatives, uh, strikes me as uh, pretty reasonable, actually. And I, I, I was, uh, I was surprised at, uh, how sympathetic I was to him on that particular point at, at the time he answered that question. So that was one thing where I thought he really did add a useful material and frankly material that, that was, uh, you, you know, answered at least to, to my reasonable satisfaction some of, some of the questions that I've been really scratching my head about about him. Um, I thought his, account, his factual account of um, his behavior in the 24 hours where around the Flynn meeting in the Oval Office where he wouldn't really confirm that what Comey said was true, that he had been kind of reluctant to leave, but he kind of felt like he had to because the president dismissed him. Uh, and then the next day that Comey had come to him and complained uh, I thought that sequence of answers was really unpersuasive. Mm -hmm. And uh, what he basically seemed to be saying is, uh, I have to contradict Comey on the latter question, uh, the, the question of their conversations. Um, I, I, he, his heart didn't quite seem into it. And I think he did not do himself a service with those answers. I think what, what that... Um narrative revealed to me most clearly was uh, to what an extent he was seeking to avoid responsibility. He wasn't just recusing himself from the Russia stuff. He, he was relatively new in his post, fine, but he was the attorney general and is the attorney general of the United States, responsible for the agency, chief law enforcement officer, for the United States government, and in some sense, um, the lawyer for the president, although not in a narrow sense, in the White House counsel sense. And it was striking to me the extent to which, as he related, he just didn't want to think about that. You know, what, was I thinking about whether it was okay for me to leave the room or not? No, I, I just left. I didn't really think about it. And the next day when Comey told me that he didn't want to be with, alone with the president, well, I just told him to follow the rules. I, you know, he didn't – it was a sort of passivity and uh, failure to take responsibility that I – that, and that's one reason why it was so unpersuasive because one assumes – that uh, a senior politician goes into a job like that because he has some ambitions um, and he has some sense of his own co competence and his own authority and his own ideas. And the picture he gave as a way of kind of dodging the, the questions and dodging the issues was a picture of a man who has nothing to do. What's he even doing there? Well, on, on that question of what he's doing, I did think it was notable that he closed his opening remarks by talking about... Uh, murder rates and the opioid crisis so it there is there are things that he's focused on and they're not this right um but but right, there's but also he could have mobilized you know burr in his opening statement put such an emphasis on 
the the committee's role being to investigate this Russia hack so that they could prevent anything like this from ever happening again. And he does have responsibility at, for national security policy as it relates to this. He could have picked up on that. He could have used it. The fact that he had to say over and over again that not only has he never been briefed on this Russia stuff, um, he he really didn't seem very interested in it. I think that spoke volumes. Yeah, and it seems that kind of that put him in a camp that a lot of critics say the president is in himself, where he doesn't appear to be that interested with it. And <clears throat> I thought the subtext of him saying. I didn't get a briefing on this, and I think in some cases he even kind of said this outright, was if I had gotten a briefing on it just to be up to speed on the security aspects, you all would be skewering me for getting a briefing on it and saying that was inappropriate. So, I mean, I thought there were times where he was trying to say to his colleagues, you know, these are all his friends and former colleagues, you know, I am in this impossible position here. What do you expect me to do? And that clearly wasn't satisfying to many members of the committee. Right. But I but I think there's so I, look, I actually think his position here has some merit, um, which is, you know, if you're recused, you're supposed to be recused. And one of the things that we learned from the hearing that was really interesting was that his functional recusal was almost immediate um, and that he didn't. Uh, you know, he didn't participate in the investigation until the day he was recused. He essentially was functionally recused from the beginning, and then the recusal formalized mm -hmm. at some point. And so my reaction to that is, okay, then he probably should get a pass for the passivity uh, that Trump should certainly not get a pass from on the, on the Russian hacking. The problem is then that you don't have an attorney general who's focused on one of the principal national security problems that we have. And that right. raises a question of, you know, should the should we have an attorney general who is recused from the central issue that, you know, we're facing uh, or one of the central issues that we're facing as a society right now? And there's a pretty good argument in my view that that he behaved correctly here but that that's a pretty good reason for him not to be the attorney general. Yeah, I mean, on the question of the recusal, though, I think that that's also something that raised a lot of questions for me. So he, if I'm getting the dates right, he recused himself on March 2nd. He said that he had functionally recused himself from the moment he took office, essentially, which is about a month earlier. But... And he said, well, the reason that he recused himself was under Department of Justice regulations, he sort of came to realize that he fit, he had a significant association, or I forget what the terminology is, um, with the campaign, and therefore that it wouldn't be appropriate under these regulations for him to be involved in the investigation. Okay, seems fair enough. The thing is that um, Comey, in his hearing last week, said before the committee he was asked he he said that he and FBI leadership had broadly understood that Sessions would likely recuse himself in the few weeks before he did so he was asked why and he refused to answer in open right. session so, there were so they could have just been playing cool but it doesn't sound to me if the reason that Sessions was they thought Sessions would recuse himself comes down to um complying with Department of Justice regulations that does not strike me as something that you need to talk about in close no. session. No, it's true. And, and remember, too, Trump was reportedly furious when Sessions did recuse himself. It's true, although I, I interpreted that as, you know, saying perhaps that everybody knew Sessions was functionally already recused and that Dana Bente was essentially running the investigation and that they assumed 
uh, that eventually that would produce an actual recusal. Now, why you couldn't say that in, in, in open session, I'm really not sure. But I'm not sure that I, that, that necessarily it, it portends that there's some deep, dark fact, uh, waiting still to come out. There's also something I want to get your guys' take on, <laughs> but <clears throat> I think if you were to talk to any journalist who's been covering Russia uh, and this investigation for the past several months, they'll tell you that one of the stories people have been chasing is this possible third meeting that Jeff Sessions is said to have had with the Russians that has never come out. And there have been, you know, we've been on this, and I know the Times reporters have talked about this, some of them publicly. Um, Jeff Sessions seemed to put an end to all of that decisively in this hearing yesterday, I thought, by saying there were no other meetings, at least not any of substance that amounted to, you know, ones that he would be... Did you guys... You're, you're no, because he, he said... So first... Well, I mean, his, I'm not saying he put an end to the he answer. I'm saying he's saying there are none. So that there do turn out to be any. Well, didn't he, he say? Didn't he say I didn't I recall? Well, he said he didn't recall, but he was also, I thought, pretty emphatic in saying that this whole business of me colluding with the Russians is nonsense, and it was pretty clear that there were no other meetings that he could recall. Uh, now, if the if one does come up, the I don't recall or didn't recall excuse isn't going to fly. But I mean, I thought that that was him pushing squarely back against these rumors, speculation that have been swirling out there and kind of doubling down and saying, nope, there is nothing to this. I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, the May, the whole Mayflower Hotel thing has been kind of hanging out there and right. a lot of people have been working on it. And, uh, you know, he just sort of said it it didn't happen except in the limited poss- left open the limited possibility that there may have been an incidental uh, encounter in the context of of uh you know a big room with lots of people you know it's interesting cuz he went into great detail on the mayflower and i think that the detail provided was pretty convincing in that sense but the the broader statement seemed to me more more of a uh, moral righteousness kind of objection than an I can assure you the facts as I recall them to the best of my ability are that I had no more meetings. It was more, you know, I assure you that I am not the kind of guy who would ever right. collude and right. I, to harm the country. And I did not do that. So it was, it was more a kind of get on my high horse than yeah. it was. Yeah. Let me tell you, I've really thought about this and checked my calendar and I'm sure. And if I'm remembering correctly, when he was making that statement, Tammy, he very carefully framed it in terms of, I had no conversations with Russians about colluding with, you know, co- colluding with <laughs> the campaign. He did say that too. Right. Sure. And that I'm, I'm shocked, shocked that you would think that I would do such a thing, which of course is a, in the range of discussions one could have had, there could have been other discussions that didn't specifically reference collusion. Not saying that he's lying about that, but that that, that sort of moral outrage was very specifically framed on this question right, of collusion but, per se. But he said pretty clearly that any meeting at the Mayflower that may have happened, first of all, he doesn't remember, and secondly, would have been a bunch of people in, in sort of an incidental contact in the context of a bunch of people in a room. And that's just not what the people who've been chasing this story right. are trying, oh, to, yeah, are yeah, trying right. to hunt down. Yeah. I do think there's one other area that 
uh, Sessions uh, really fell down yesterday, and that is about his role in Comey's firing, um, on which uh, he actually doubled down on the idea that this was about the way Comey handled the Clinton email stuff. And, you know, I don't know what the final verdict is going to be on Jim Comey, and I don't know what the final verdict is going to be on the circumstances of his firing, but I am 100% sure that the final verdict of history uh, will not be that Jim Comey was fired because he, you know, arrogated power to himself in the in the resolution of the Clinton email matters. And I think I was surprised to hear Sessions under oath uh, saying that that was what the reason he played the role that he played. And uh, I want to say, without accusing him of of misconduct. I do not believe that was the reason <laughs> that he played the role. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, but again, like to me, this is evidence of his willful abdication of responsibility that, well, you know, I don't know what the president was thinking. I don't know what factored into his calculation and his decision. But, you know, for me and Rosenstein, it was all about mismanagement and not following the rules of the FBI. And we just gave our recommendation to the president. What happened after that? Well, what? I have no responsibility for that. Yeah, and, and, more, and moreover, moreover, do you know why the president wanted to do it? I can't discuss my conversations with the president, but that's not has nothing to do with executive well, privilege. Well, no, it's then it it does because it's, they might invoke executive right. privilege in the future. Right. So I can I talk see, about I, it. Now. Maybe I'm just way too cynical, but I took this as him actually throwing the president under the bus, at least partly, bigly, big, big <clears throat> by saying, you know, like, you know, uh, look, the public, the, the public reason that I put my name on is the Clinton email, and that is that that is the tent that I am standing under. And if Donald Trump wants to go give an interview to Lester Holt, fine. But here's what I know, and that's as far as I'm going to go. It took till the end of the hearing. It may have been the last round of questions, at least by a Democrat, uh, for somebody to point out Sessions's own comments. In October, when Comey uh, made uh, the referral uh, back to Congress of, of the reactivation of the investigation, and uh, Sessions was um, uh, tried to draw a sharp distinction between his horror at what happened in July and his support for what Comey did in October, and I think uh, that one is going to get the deference it deserves, frankly. All right, uh, let's move on to our next story, uh, also in Russia news. Uh, Bloomberg uh, this week, uh, Michael Riley and Jordan Robertson, who do terrific work uh, on cybersecurity, have a, a really startling report that found, uh, just reading from the lead here, Russia's cyber attack on the U.S. electoral system before Trump's election was far more widespread than has been publicly revealed, including incursions into voter databases and software systems in almost twice as many states as previously reported. Um, the nut of this is that in all Russian hackers hit systems in a total of 39 states. Uh, in Illinois in particular, which is where a lot of the reporting in this story focused, investigators found evidence that intruders tried to delete or alter voter data. Uh, and the hackers uh, accessed software designed to be used by poll workers on election day in at least one state, uh, accessed a campaign finance database. Um, so you, so you, t- you total all this up <clears throat> and um, it looks like this is another front uh, in the Russian active measures campaign that isn't just about stealing emails from the DNC or from Clinton campaign associates and turning those into to timed leaks. 
but really some kind of concerted effort to penetrate at the state level these kinds of systems. And we should say, I mean, there's, again, still no evidence about any penetration of voting machines. These are not even the systems that you would be getting into if you were trying to change vote counts. But there was a lot of concern in the run-up to the election that you could manipulate voter roll data or delete data such that you could cause long line of polls, you could sow confusion on election slow day, the counting slow process. the counting process down, undermine people's confidence in the outcome if reports got out that there was a lot of hacking. Um, I have to say, on the one hand, this makes total sense to me, because if there was such a concerted Russian active measures campaign, why would it only be targeting Democratic inst- party institutions? You would think you would go much bigger and bolder than that if you were really probing the whole infrastructure, which it appears that to some degree they were trying to be broad in that. Um and it also seems to me that this is a story that is getting totally missed <laughs> in the coverage of the investigation, which, right, look, count me among the people who are following possible collusion between the Trump campaign and where the FBI is going and now the special counsel. Um, but, and this came up, obviously, in the context of the Sessions hearing, too. This is a pretty massive effort by a foreign power to undermine fundamental basic elements of the election system and of the process. It's bigger than people understood. And I think it raises a really important question about why the Obama administration did not say more about this at the time. I mean, it was very clear that they were trying to warn states to shore up their systems. But I can't escape the thought that, you know, if most of Americans knew that, you know, basically 80% of states had been targeted in some ways by the Russians, we would have been having a pretty higher level, more significant conversation uh, about these events. And it just seemed like the administration was trying to keep that quiet. I want to tell you the story of Benjamin Sittis, my my doppelganger alter ego. So a number of years ago, when I was a young editorial writer at the Washington Post, I uh, decided that though being registered as anything but a Democrat in the District of Columbia is an act of self-disenfranchisement and insanity, I should probably be registered as an independent uh, because I was working as an editorial writer for a newspaper that did not then say democracy dies in darkness, but said an independent newspaper was its slogan. And so I, uh, it took a while because D.C. is a motor voter state. So, But the next time I went to re- redo my driver's license, I changed my voter registration to independent, only instead of changing Benjamin Wittes's, uh voter registration, Benjamin Wittes remained a registered Democrat, and a new voter was added to the voter rolls uh, named Benjamin Sittis, who was an independent. And uh, Benjamin Sittis lived at uh, 2237 Observatory Place, where, where we then lived, uh, and his phone number was the same as mine and his uh, – He was such a quiet guy. He was a quiet guy. He never bothered us. But uh, he was there on the voter rolls. And uh, I used to get two voter registration cards. Um, and one year I decided I'd, – I'd reported him as you know a ghost voter a number of times and they'd never removed him. And one year I actually decided I was going to receive a ballot in the name of Benjamin Sittis, spoil the ballot so it wouldn't be actually – uh, and then write a column about it entitled, I don't know about you, but I voted twice today. And right before I did it, I called a criminal lawyer friend of mine and said, how bad an idea is this? And there was a long pause 
on the other end of the phone and my friend said, that's a terrible idea. You really <laughs> shouldn't do that. It's a felony and they do prosecute those cases. Uh, so I didn't do it. And Benjamin Sittis remained on the rolls for years um, until I finally got a, a letter telling me uh, from the D.C. Board of Elections and Ethics that they suspected uh, Benjamin Sittis of voter fraud. And unless I should show cause why he should remain on the rolls, he was going to be removed. Uh, so I did nothing and he is now uh, – You, didn't, you didn't talk to Benjamin Sittis about it? I didn't talk to him about it. I didn't – I figured uh, – so here's my point. First of all, um, you can look at this as a good news story or a bad news story. If you're one of the people who believes in voter fraud as a big problem in American society, there are a lot of uh, ghost voters on the rolls and a lot of them are there by accident. Some of them are there not by accident. Some of them are dead people. You know, some of them, some of them are just misspellings like Benjamin Sittis. On the other hand, Benjamin Sittis never voted. And so if, if the concern is actual vote manipulation, uh, a certain amount of that stuff is pretty harmless. But if your concern is Russian hacking and you say uh, ghost voters can get on the rolls because, um, you know, people misspell people's names uh, or because uh, they don't get removed from the rolls when they should or, you know, for any of the reasons that something like Benjamin Sittis happens or – and the flip side is that People disappear from the rolls when they shouldn't. Uh, and you say, is the FSB or the GRU capable of manipulating that and generating fake voters or removing real voters? And the answer has to be, of course. And that's a really scary thing because, you know, the number of accidents is big and the number of accidents that happen on purpose could also be big. So I that's kind of terrifying. On the other hand, I don't know that we know how big the accident problem is or the ghost problem is absent interference. The The possibility of directed interference is terrifying. And I think that what I find so worrisome about this Bloomberg report is that you know, we've always said that one of the strengths of our uh, of the integrity of our electoral system is that it is so localized. It is run by states and counties boards of election, and therefore it's very distributed. And so you can't just have one focused attack that would do a lot of damage countrywide. You know, if they've gotten into systems in 39 states, well, okay, distri distribution is not a defense. Um, and I find that very worrisome. But, you know, the challenge here, I, I kind of feel for the Obama administration, I think they faced a real dilemma in how to respond to this. And it may be that as we learn more over time, we will all come to the judgment that they should have made a bigger public deal about this. But if if we believe that the Russian goal here was to disrupt Americans' confidence in their electoral system and the outcomes it produces, then public revelation of hacking of this scope would have that effect whether the hacking did anything or not. And so in a sense, the Obama administration would have been doing the Russians' work for them. By publicizing it. By publicizing it. it. And I can, I can certainly understand why they would have wanted to try and hmm. handle it quietly. Um, I think there are two issues I would raise. One is it's clear that these local electoral elections boards and counties and states do not have the defensive 
mechanisms and the security mechanisms that they need and they need help and they need it urgently. Um, and the second thing is that what com comes through in the Bloomberg story is that the Obama administration in handling it quietly reached out fairly forcefully to the Russians, got a pretty lame response. Right. And that was it. They used the uh, the red phone, which is actually a a, a cyber a phone. data line. It's yeah, it's a cyber red <clears throat> phone for cyber hacking problems, and they used it. And the Russians were like, "Oh gosh, really? Tell us more, and we'll look we'll and look see if we that. have any people doing unauthorized things." You know, we looked, and the answer was yet. <laughs> right, and and that was kind of the end of it. And I think that I do find troubling, even given the concern about publicizing. Yeah. So so two points here. One is. Tammy, on your point that you publicizing it itself does damage, um, I think we're actually kind of seeing that now in the wake of this. So there is a a tweet from um, Esquire magazine of all places yesterday that got like hey, if Teen Vogue can become a central, <laughs> you know, I'm not discriminating. So Esquire's done really so, good yeah, no, 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 no. So they, they they story. have had yeah. good coverage. So it has six. Point five thousand retweets, seven point three thousand likes, and the title of the story is "It increasingly looks like Russian hackers may have affected actual vote totals." That is not true. There is no evidence that vote totals were affected. There is, as we as we've discussed, evidence that they were looking in the system. What's their claim for that? I they're they're looking at the. I think they're there's yeah no they're citing the Bloomberg story. So it's it's no, but so, but so, right, basically. right. Which but but the thing is that people people anyway. look at clickbait, and on Twitter, that's how misinformation spreads. People oh. look at clickbait, they see the headline, they get confused, and they get afraid. So you this can is, see this is why how on this lawfare, happens. We always use the headline: "Girls, girls, girls." <laughs> <laughs> and Trump, so they'll keep reading. Yeah. <laughs> so so that's one point is that the I think actually the. You can. This is a great case study of how that kind of misinformation spreads, just from there being news about how yeah. Russians were trying to access systems. And the other point is also, I mean, apart from the cyber red phone conversation, we know from John Brennan's testimony a few weeks ago that he had a phone call with the head of the FSB, Alexander Bortnikov, in August. And told Bortnikov that he was aware that the Russians yeah. were attempting active measures and that the American people would be outraged. And Bortnikov reportedly denied the allegations and said he would talk to Putin about them. So that's this, that's the first right. time they reached out, according to this timeline. I got to say, though, I disagree with the idea that publicizing it would have been playing into their hands. I mean, I think, oh, but, but I don't disagree that that would be giving them something of what they want in terms of creating confusion and scaring people. But at the same time, if we're going to ask Americans to take seriously the threat of Russian intervention in our elections, then, you know, God damn it, you have to tell them when the Russians are intervening in the election. And I think that we need, you know, to expect that people should take that seriously and be able to distinguish fact and fiction. And it's our job as people in the press to, to separate that and clearly describe what's going on. Um, but you know, it's just, I, I, and maybe it's just a professional bias here, but I come away feeling really discouraged and disappointed, actually, that the administration wasn't more forthcoming about this and alerting people to it. And what ended up happening is that it did become a partisan issue because now people who support Trump think that the intelligence community made the whole thing up. And I'm obviously painting with a very broad brush here, but that it has become a partisan divide now. Whereas I wonder that if it had happened 
in the election, in the moment, before we knew who won, uh, before people had sort of retreated even further into their camps, if the government had come out and said, look, there's a real problem here. It's widespread. We know about it. We're putting the Russians on notice. You don't need to be afraid about the integrity of the election system, but you do deserve to know what's happening here. I agree with that. And I also think there's a, there's a, there's a few principles of a solution to this problem that is really worth uh, people thinking about. One is that it should be exceptionally easy for a registered voter to verify that he or she is in fact on the voter rolls. And, you know, there should be a re, it should be really easy to do that. And second, we should be States should and localities should be disciplined and continuous about removing uh, people who aren't uh, properly on the voter rolls from them. And that, you know, that has to be done in a fashion that's respectful of voting rights and not an effort to suppress the vote. But removing ghost voters is an, is actually an important thing to do. And Benjamin Sittis shouldn't have been on the rolls for as long as he was. I, I will add a third recommendation, which is that I think the White House needs a philosopher in chief as advisor to the president to help him or her think through all of these what ifs. Yeah. I'm available. (laughs) I'd actually like that job, too. That would be a fun job. All right, let's move on to our third topic. Um, The White House is handing say over Afghan troop levels to the military. Uh, My colleagues Diane Nissenbaum and Gordon Lubold at the Wall Street Journal have a story this week that uh, President Trump has given the Pentagon unilateral authority to send thousands of new American troops to Afghanistan at its discretion, um, setting U.S. official, clearing the way for the military to intensify its fight against the Taliban and Islamic State extremists in the region. Um, Tomorrow, we've talked a lot on the show about <clears throat> delegation of authority in this administration to, uh, to the generals, the delegation of authority further down the chain of command, uh, in the, uh, in the battlefield, um, should we? How should we be reading this decision? Is this is this another step on that continuum where this president is really not interested in clinging to these kinds of executive authorities that some presidents had, and really is looking to delegate and says, "Look, troop levels—that's something that the military knows most about. Logically, should be uh, uh, under their purview." How should we be reading this? Let the uniforms win. Um, leave war to the generals. Leave war to the generals, right. So, and, and so that's the first point is that part of this goes back to a rather old and fairly partisan argument um, that dates back to Vietnam. Uh, and the idea that, you know, if you let politics and political pressures get in the way of military decision making, then you're tying the hands of the military and they'll never be able to succeed at their mission. This was a big part of Republican criticisms of Pre- President Obama and what they viewed as his micromanagement of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the broader war against terror. Um, And so on the one hand, you know, there's a constituency for this. um, And uh, and there's a, a hypothesis there that if you free the military to make the decisions it needs to make in order to achieve the mission that you've given it, it can succeed because it is the biggest, baddest military in the world, full of creative and intelligent people. So we're going to test this hypothesis. That's the first point. Um, but I also see here, and you know, maybe this is me being uh, too cynical and unfair, uh, but I, I see here a little bit of a continuation of a pattern um, whereby President Trump, by delegating authority 
is also trying to avoid responsibility. And I think it's a particularly fraught enterprise on Afghanistan. This is the longest war that the United States has ever been involved in. Um, It is a war that, as Secretary Mattis testified this week, we are not winning. The Taliban is resurging. ISIS is now present in Afghanistan. The Afghan government is struggling. It does not have control over all its territory. And it's a NATO mission, but other NATO partners have made clear that they are going to be removing troops from Afghanistan. And so we're already at a really tough decision point uh, about do we increase uh, or do we kind of slink away and try to find other ways to sustain uh, the Afghan government, Um, but knowing that that's unlikely to work. And so it's a very tough, politically risky decision. Um, now, in practice, what, what they're talking about is maybe increasing troops by a few thousand, uh, but that could also be a slippery slope. Um, and once, if we get involved in more combat missions, officially our combat mission in Afghanistan is over, but that could change. Um, and, and so, again, you know, these are decisions for which the American people want their president to make the choice to explain to them why it's necessary to put their husbands, sons, daughters, wives in harm's way, um, and to have a strategy which is not merely a military strategy to make sure that that risk and sacrifice is worthwhile. And the idea that the president is taking himself out of that equation and saying, well, whatever the secretary of defense and the generals decide is okay with me, I think that's a that's a politically risky thing for him to do. He may be doing it to try and avoid the downside risk. If things go south, he can blame it on Mattis. Um, but he looks to the American people like he's checked out of something that they actually care a lot about. So I want to take the opposite view of this. Um, I, I actually wholeheartedly support what the president is doing here. And, um, and that's because you have no faith in his ability to make a good decision? Correct. <laughs> So I, I think that when when you're dealing with a president – so there, I agree with Tamara that there is uh, an incredibly difficult question when you're dealing with a normal president uh, about how – what the balance of authority within the agencies versus uh, centralized are. Traditionally, the conduct of war was really left to the de- Defense Department – uh, and, you know, presidents, uh, did relatively little oversight of, you know, for example, the conduct of World War II or the conduct of World War I. Um, the national security establishment came, has been undergoing a centralization, uh, for a long time. And Obama, uh, concentrated a huge amount of authority in the National Security Council. And there's a lot of decisions, and and actually Quinta has written about uh, a bunch of them with respect to person taking personal responsibility for drone uh, targeting decisions that are just unthinkable that this would be in the hands of the president under normal more uh, traditionally, and that Obama felt personally responsible for taking responsibility for. And I, I think there is a really great debate to be had about 
whether in general that is a good thing or a bad thing and what the optimal level of centralization you want for presidential decision-making about this sort of thing is. Uh, when the president is a crazy person and the secretary of defense is a very sane, serious person, the argument from a practical point of view in letting the policymaking migrate towards sanity strikes me as overpowering irrespective of the uh, of 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 anything else and i come at this from a point of view of i trust mattis to make decisions to the best of his ability i do not trust donald trump to make decisions to the best of his ability i also believe that mattis's abilities are much more substantial than trump's abilities and so you're by I think what the president is basically saying here, this is his way of saying, I don't know more about ISIS than the generals. I don't know more. Um, you know, this isn't about ISIS, but it's about that too, right? It's I don't really know how to do this. And I have a secretary of defense who does know how to do this. Now, that's maybe a disgraceful admission on Trump's part, but it happens to be the truth. And um, and I think so without prejudice to the to the the bigger question which is when you have sane people running the government who whom do you want what do you want the, the how involved do you want the president to be in these decisions i think in this situation this is the wisest decision this president has made on any subject yeah so to to chime in to go back to the the work that ben mentioned that i've done about obama a lot of what i was writing there was about not only how Obama had actually sort of brought personal responsibility onto himself in a lot of counterterrorism targeting uh, situations, but he was seemed to me to be trying to cultivate the appearance of having responsibility. Um, and I think this, in a way, goes back to Tammy's point earlier about Sessions, that there's this sort of impression that the, on a lot of issues, the certain figures in the administration, the White House, and in some cases, Sessions are kind of going like, Eh. Um, that, as Ben says, this is seems to be an. It looks like an admission that, as Ben says, Trump doesn't know more about ISIS than the generals. But it's it's striking to me that, in terms of the sort of the visual and the message that you're sending to the public, the message is. Eh. Whereas with Obama, however contrived it was. The message was, you know, I, I care deeply about, I, you know, I'm, I'm up at night eating my seven almonds or how many almonds it was, you know, weighted down by these decisions. In order to another and, war. Right, exactly. So, right. so again, this is totally, this is totally on the sort of optics, as people say, and I hate that word, uh, not on the substance, but I do think that is, is notable that at least they're, they're not presenting the same image of responsibility or they're not thinking about what it would mean to do that. Um, and the, the other point also to follow up on Ben, I think that this raises a really interesting question, which is something that Ben and I have written about in a different context about uh, the presidential oath that we, we have the systems we have in place are in place for an administration where we generally assume like we assume the president isn't a crazy person and things work in a particular way because of that. And now we may be seeing the way that systems work shifting because the president, many people feel the president can't be trusted. Everyone is saying. Right. Many, yeah. many people are people saying. Are saying. Um, so in this case, Ben specifically is more comfortable with the responsibility being developed. But the, the problem is, is that 
you know, I don't think we're going to end up with, you know, God Emperor Trump. So at some point, someone else will come into office. And then the question is, the president that you set now, how is that going to affect how we do things later? Well, I, I think that's a very good question. But I also think that there's a more immediate question, which is that we've already seen uh, Trump overrule without consultation, without even a heads up. Uh, decisions that he had previously pushed down the line or simply not expressed much interest in. And so there's no reason at all to assume, Ben, that simply because he's delegated this authority, he won't, you know, overrule whatever Mattis decides to do with no preparation or no thought because somebody whispered in his ear or he, you know, he saw something on on Fox and Friends. And, and so I think that this this delegation of authority does not, in fact, protect the policy from the consequences of a volatile, capricious, thoughtless, perhaps not entirely rational commander in chief. He's still the commander in chief. And the challenge that I've been trying to think through is whether there's any way within the existing process to provide that protection. Is there a way that Mattis could you know, make his own determination within the department and then bring it back up to the interagency and somehow get it sanctioned by the president and vetted by other uh, agencies that have a role to play in a broader strategy. But again, the president could simply steamroll any and all of that whenever he wants. Yeah, but what you're describing now, and look, I agree with everything you just said, but the problem there is not the delegation. It's the overruling of the delegation the day that that happens. And, and you know, I, I think the, the, the problem that you're describing is inherent in the nature and structure of the executive branch of the United States. Isn't and, it then better for, for secretaries of agencies to compel the president to sit down and listen to them debate options? Well, that, depend, <laughs> that, that depends what the likely result of that is going to be. I want Donald Trump as little involved in these questions as humanly possible. And I want him accountable for them. All right. <clears throat> Let's move on to another accounting. Object lessons. We're going to do something different this week. You guys have been so, so great about leaving reviews and ratings uh, on the podcast that so we thought we would read some of our favorite ones. You like us. You really, <clears throat> you really, like, really us. like us. <laughs> um, tomorrow, you want to read some of your favorites or one of your favorites? Um, okay. Well, <laughs> I I think that as I read through these reviews, first of all, they're just, they, they are really heartwarming. And thank you all so much for taking time to write us a little note about what you like and about the sound levels. And we're doing our best. So thanks for the feedback on that. I think the thing that came through to me most clearly is um, how many people said that they'd like to just hang out and have a beer with us. Although, as you know, we, we drink a lot of scotch around here. Um, and we do have beer summits, though. We do have beer summits uh, at least once a year. And so first of all, I wanted to say, please join us at the next one if you're in the D.C. area. Um, but secondly, you know, we I like that this is a conversation. And please keep sending us feedback, which you can do on our Facebook page. I think that um, the, the one that I the one that I liked the most is very recent. It's from Naveen Kabir Esquire. So I assume that is a lawyer. Uh, the headline of this review is Take It From Nerds Who Know. And yes, I am a proud nerd. Uh, Naveen writes, crisp and timely expert analysis on all the penumbras and emanations poking out of Bigly Kofefe's White House. If you appreciate expertise and insight and or 
are a nerd thirsty for a meaningful breakdown of hashtag scoops, supplement your Twitter diet with this podcast. It's a great review. I also have one mentioning nerds, the coolest nerds around, it says, by uh, Unextremely Vetted. Which I love that name. <clears throat> I wish I lived in a group house with Ben tomorrow, Shane and Susan. Shane's husband is welcome too. I just Aww. want to point out that Brendan Hennessy is left out of that, and I think we should we should say if we're going to do a group house, uh, yeah, we should let Brendan. We, we got to let Brendan. Does come. he have any skills? <laughs> His Italian is great. <laughs> I'm just going to hide in the attic. Ben, did you have a favorite review? I uh, I have two. I want to read. Uh, the first one, which really moved me, is uh, by zero zero one zero one zero one zero one zero. I liked that one too. Who, I haven't decoded the, uh, the 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 binary. The binary. Yet, it though. reads uh, rational security along with other podcasts like the National Security Law Podcast. By the way, shout out to the National Security Law Podcast, which is fabulous, and the Lawfare Blog have fixated my interest. I'm currently an undergrad. And the work done on this podcast, as well as the Lawfare blog, has encouraged me to attend law school and pursue a career in national security law and foreign policy. I'm the, so sorry. <laughs> the topics discussed here are fascinating and impactful to seek new perspectives on the constant battering of Trump news scandals. Look here first. So message to 00101010101010. Yeah, do it, man or woman. Uh, or other, because uh, uh, these are actually really cool subjects. And, uh, you know, the current craziness, this too shall pass. And there are still going to be a lot of hard uh, legal choices, national security choices, foreign policy choices to make. And uh, so if your reaction to the last few months is, um, uh, I want to go into that field, you're probably a little crazy. Uh, but you're the kind of crazy that we need. Uh, the day after that review was, was posted, uh, somebody, uh, posted under the name, uh, the, uh, Sammy, uh, sorry, Sa- Sam I am the law posted under the subject line canon. Canon, 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 canon. And I'm, I knew you were going to notice that. And one. I just want to say, uh, dude, bring it on. <laughs> I'm I'm just gonna flag one by I'm not sure how to pronounce this Avazen one 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 that the title of the review is the only bespoke liquor tasting review show I listen to. Nice. Yes, and it says the public health implications of this show are so dangerous they should be followed up by a damage assessment on their livers. <laughs> That's really all you need to know. A battle damage assessment <laughs> after each of the don't leave us a rating and review. Leave us a leave us a battle damage assessment. <laughs> There was also, at the last um, beer summit, I suggested that people should begin their reviews with my life was a cold, charred tinder until I listened to Rational Security. And I just want to thank everyone who actually left a review uh, that started with that. Yeah, we appreciate that. Uh, Thanks so much, guys. That brings us to the end of another episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive on our website. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And, of course, you you can read all these wonderful reviews when you write one, too, on Apple Podcasts. It's no longer iTunes Podcasts. That's what the kids are calling it now. Apple Podcasts. I just can't keep up with the kids these days. Who can? Who can? We can barely keep up with what we talk about. 
Um, so please do download the podcast and leave a rating and review there. And thanks again for helping us out. Our audio engineer and guest this week is Quinta Jurassic. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music was performed this week by Jeff Sessions and the Hot Seats. <laughs> the Hot Pants? The Hot Pants. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, oh no. <laughs> like, oh, no. No, 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 no. no. Oh, no. Only the backup singers are allowed to wear hot pants in yeah. that band. <laughs> Our music is, of course, performed by Sophia Yan, who would probably look awesome in hot pants. No doubt. Better than Jeff Sessions. We can definitely say <laughs> That's that. That's a low bar, but yes. Sophia, we apologize for comparing your looks in hot pants to that of Jeff Sessions. <laughs> <laughs> I think she'll forgive us. She's, she's stuck with us for this long. Uh, on behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Quinta Jurassic, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.